Hey everybody, welcome back to The Mound Visit, the catcher's only podcast show. This podcast is presented to you by All-Star Sports. We are set to close out the ninth inning of game number three. But before we do, let's highlight and go through some of our previous shows. Leading off of game number three was Atlanta Braves catching coordinator J.D. Klosser. In the two-hole, future Hall of Fame pitcher Kurt Schilling. Our third inning guest was former Major League Manager Jeff Bannister. Our fourth inning guest of game number three was former Phillies pitcher Dave Cogman. Our fifth inning guest might arguably be the best receiving catcher in today's game from the San Diego Padres, Austin Hedges. Our sixth inning guest, deemed by many of his colleagues as the godfather, the Detroit Tigers quality control coach and catching coach, Josh Paul. Our seventh inning guest, we headed back out to the mound to meet with former Major League pitcher and current broadcaster, Nelson Figueroa. And our eighth inning guest, getting both the hold and the save for the ninth, is our resident GM, Bill Guyvette. Let's get rolling with part number two with Bill Guyvette. All right, we're, we're going to skip some introductions here because we're doing part two here on the mountain visit. Um, I'm Tyler Goodrow, one of your hosts. Uh, always with me is my other co-host, Chris Snooze, and, and we're bringing back what we're going to call him our resident GM, Bill Guyvette. Guyvo, thank you again for, for doing part two with us. I know we were just tipping the iceberg on the last uh, call. Um, prior to even starting this one, we were talking about just some different analytics in, in today's game. Um, but first off, uh, how's life been treating you? Good. I just, I don't want to strain anything because I got to go play golf right now. So <laughs> you know, at this point in my career, I don't want to get physically injured. But, uh, <laughs> you don't come back. You don't come back as quickly, especially when I got to pull out a long iron or something. I mean, I want to make sure that I'm physically able to move the club. <laughs> uh, no, doing good. Doing good. Got some business stuff going, and uh, that's progressing nicely. So, um, yeah, it's doing my thing. So, enjoying that baseball's back and that people are actually – go ahead. So, we're going to give a, a shameless plug. So, please let everyone know where they can get your book at. Uh, you can get my book on Amazon. It's called Do You Want to Work in Baseball? It's basically um, – you know, there's a lot of books out now that are of quantitative nature, so statistical analytics and all that. And what I tried to do is write a book that's basically all qualitative. So I stayed away from the analytics stuff. I got a little bit, you know, maybe in one where we're in the scouting section, we're actually, you know, I'm scouting a player, describing him and going through, I do some spin rate stuff there. But other than that, I stay away from it. And basically that's because I think there are a lot of people getting into the game that don't really have a baseball background. And I think it'd be really good for them to get into that side of it. And so I kind of talk to, well, players, um, you know, former players or people that want to get in and coaching or scouting. And at the same time, I talk to those people that are probably just more academic without a baseball background and try to help them present their evidence 
and build their brand to basically, um, in the final result, put them in position to speak the language and talk like, um, I should say, and present their material the way somebody like me or somebody sitting in an office would view what they have. And so I go through a lot of how you put together your presentation and build your brand and the experience and, and the evidence that you need to show. So you're not one of the masses when your resume shows up, uh, you're not just one of the masses. And at the same time, there are the majority of the book is traditional scouting and how I was taught to scout with the Yankees before Bernie Williams and Jeter and Posada and Pettit and all those guys showed up. I should say, I gotta say Rivera, I can't forget him. But all those guys showed up with the Yankees. That's how I was taught back then. And I presented it in a book, basically how I was taught, at least the rudimentary and fundamental aspects of scouting. Um, and then from there, I go into many chapters on player development because I thought there are a lot of either college coaches or professional, I mean, Clint Hurdle read it and he said that uh, he read it twice and he said everybody in baseball should be reading this, not just people trying to get in. And it's basically my experiences in developing players from getting them in the draft or an international sign to that progression all the way to the major leagues. And then, um, you know, a little bit on terms of what I've seen at the big league level and how that all plays into this system that you're trying to create. So, um, you know, it's do you want to work in baseball? The beginning part of it is a lot of how you present your material to actually get a job. But at the same time, the majority of the book truly is scouting and player development. What I feel like for, for players that are playing now, current players, um, to understand how they're viewed but especially for, I'd say, former players, I think it'd be interesting to go and actually learn how scouts do it. That, that do it for a job, not some guy who's saying he's an associate scout somewhere or has done this and that, but really hasn't had to beat his family by evaluating. There's a different level. And how you were taught and trained, and there, there really was no book that I saw that really did that. And so I take it from the very beginning and I tell stories about how I learned this and what I was taught and how I applied it and uh, other things to, you know, eventually some stories about the big league. So I try to intertwine stories with, um, you know, just more, I'd say my perceptions and my understanding of what I've been taught by some great people in the game, whether it's Lasorda, Felipe Alou, or Bill Lizzie, especially with the Yankees. So um, I try to put all that together in one book. They, they wanted me to write two, but I really didn't want to write two. Um, I had, when I was done with my one book, 155,000 words. Wow. Which anybody who writes books knows they want you to stay probably between 80 and 90,000 words. So I ended up cutting out most of the book and combining it into one. I didn't want to do two because I felt like the people trying to get a job in the more, if you're more of an academic person, a stats guy, you need to know the baseball language. Mm -hmm. And you need to appreciate from a qualitative standpoint that scouting and coaching, there's a process. 
And a lot of times people are coming into the game with a more statistical background and not giving old scouts and managers and coaches any credit for what they do. They think they're just guys that lean on a fungo and hit one every once in a while. There's a lot of thought and process that goes into what they do. They just don't share it. They don't document it. They don't put it down. And uh, to me, that needed to be documented. And so that's what I tried to do in the book. Cool. So I was, I was telling Tyler before you jumped on that my, um, my wife threw out last week and she had been, she loves her Facebook as most, most women do. And she started playing around and, and uh, checking out my Twitter feed, my, um, the training Facebook page that I have on even the mound visit page. And, and so out of the blue, she's like, so when are you going to get back and be a catching coordinator? And I go, well, um, I thought you wanted me home because you know how that would go. I'd be home and away and home and away. And, and she goes, well, what would you need to do to get a job in it? And I said, well, I, I know pretty much most of the people out there to begin with. Um, I said, but yeah, there's a lot of other things that would go in. Um, now being, since you mentioned associate scout, I've been an associate scout for over 10 years and, you know, I've had some, some good people to work with, but I think that it is a, when you are talking about having to use that as your source of income, you know, there is, there's a lot more than just saying, Hey, I played and I've helped out so-and-so and, you know, if I'm at these large um, amateur events, then I take notes on kids and pass them on. So the book will show that there is a lot more in depth than, than what people think. Because I think right now everybody wants to, everyone that follows any type of social media, they go, oh, I know enough. You know, I can, I can do this. You know, how come I can't get a job in baseball? Right. And that's a lot of people I either get emails or whatever from and we try to discuss that and most of them don't really have much of a baseball background I mean you're a little different in terms of that obviously but most people don't or they've been in youth baseball a lot and it can happen but you need to do the right things to put yourself in position for that and then truly now the the real in, in any industry you know I tell when I speak to uh, college either sports management programs or whatever, and these professors would bring me in and, and I'll tell them, what's your brand? Really, I mean, who are you? What, what is gonna jump out at me for me to believe you have some type of specialty? What is your brand? Even though I, I don't think that we're gonna be hiring a specialist because you have no experience, but you have to present yourself as that and show to me with evidence that I can tangibly evidence that you are a specialist in this whatever brand you have. I tell the story about Joe Madden in the book and Joe was you know an Angels coach. He was our uh, field coordinator back when I was playing uh, just after the war in the 40s and uh, Joe so Joe was there and um, he was a, a really one of the first data guys and now the data has gotten so far, Joe's kind of settling somewhere probably in the middle. But at the time, 
in, uh, you know, he was truly the data guy. And there was an article I remember in the Orange County Register and in the LA Times about Joe, because he was an Angels coach at this time at the big league level. And he was using the computer more for, you know, positioning and defense and, and other things. And really one of the first guys. And so when Tampa Bay goes out looking for a guy, and they're, you know, Andrew at the time, Andrew Friedman was 28 years old. And they, uh, you know, his background in business, not really a lot in baseball, and the ownership as well were financial guys. And so they wanted somebody that understood data and help bring data to baseball and make decisions. And so there's Joe, because he had built up that brand. That was him. It wouldn't, you didn't have to look very far. Joe was the guy. And he ends up getting that job there. And that's the thing really for me is that people need to understand you can't walk in and say, I'm passionate. I work hard. You know, I'm, I'm the guy I'll be here early and I'll stay late. And yeah, everybody says that. So you have to separate yourself somehow from that stack of resumes that show up to a major league club. And how you're going to do that is through some type of specialized instructor. I used to tell coaches all the time, they'd come in and guy be a minor league manager for a long time and whatever else. And they'd say, you know, guy, well, how am I going to get to the big leagues? And I said, well, what's your specialty? Because to get a managing job in the big leagues, okay, you're a manager. So maybe that will happen. But typically what happens is guys get hired as a coach. So are you a hitting guy? Are you an infield guy? What are you? And that's basically how it works. So all relative to what's going on, whatever you do, whatever you feel like your specialty is, you really got to pump that up as much as you can and build that as your brand. So you can get a job first as a hitting coach and then maybe the big league manager. And, but that's really, really important for especially young people of, how are you going to make your way in this world? What type of job, what type of career? I don't care if you're in marketing or advertising, whatever. Are you a social media guy? Are you a graphics guy? What are you? Or gal? What are you? You better figure it out and you better dig into it hard. Because when people hire, they don't hire, oh, let's just get a worker. They want you to, they're trying to, especially a major league club you're trying to win a championship i don't care if it's an intern what is this intern bringing to help us win a championship problem is if you're relying on your interns you got problems but <laughs> still that's the thought process <laughs> that's the thought process what is this intern going to bring to help us win a championship and i shouldn't probably discount that because we've had a lot of good interns in the past some of them are gms now right and uh they brought a lot to the table. Wow. But, uh, yeah, do you want to work in baseball? My website is um, InsideBaseballOperations.com, where it talks about the book. It also has some chapters in there people can read. And then uh, buy it through there and get a signed copy, which I've done more than I thought. <laughs> and then uh, on Amazon. I want to I go a little high level here. So... Uh, you've worked or you had worked as a farm director for the Montreal Expos and then obviously they're no longer around and then you were um, 
with the LA Dodgers, and then you were just as recently, you were the assistant GM for the Colorado Rockies. When I talk about going high level, I want you to kind of describe to us how you're going to build a team in Colorado, because everybody accounts for, you know, the high altitude and the ball flies there. How are you approaching that as you're trying to construct a team for Colorado? Uh, the same way you do anywhere, pitching and defense. So pitching and defense is how you win championships. There's no doubt about it. Limiting the, the opposing team's ability to score runs is what you have to do to win and to win close games. So you got to be able to pitch all the way from pitch one to pitch 150 or how many you're throwing that day. But uh, – you got to be able to do that, and that's why that whole, you know, pitcher catcher defense, you know, that whole thing plays into um, really that's the heartbeat of your team. Mm-hmm. That's the heartbeat of your team, and and um, if you don't have a strong heart, you're probably not in good shape. And that's basically the, the way it goes. So it's no different. You know, people ask me all the time about. You know, Colorado, and there's a there's a tremendous amount of difference there, players and, and pitchers especially, um, and staff members. But I mean, you have to you have to stay, there. There's modifications and things that you'll do differently, but at the same time, the game is still the game, um, and that's you, the the difficulty you have is acquiring the type of pitching that you'd like and a pitch there. And especially what would do well there in getting high strikeout guys and whatever else, right? A moving bat is always dangerous in course field. And um, anybody who can make contact has a chance to do a lot of damage just with contact. So uh, limiting the amount of contact is probably always going to be best there. But now the acquisition of those, those pitchers is much more difficult in that place. So in, I guess on top of that then too, I mean, now that we have more technology into the game where we're able to identify high spin rate guys, guys that have high spin rate, but throw low velocity that might have, you know, late action movement. When you're talking about acquiring these guys and you're looking for a strike, high strikeout guys, but they leave a lot of pitches up in the zone because they're trying to throw it past people. Are you then in, well, again, I mean, are you then looking at who are my sinker ball guys, maybe ground ball guys, or are you just saying, Hey man, I, I want the guys that are, can, can throw it past people at a hundred miles an hour. No, I think, um, you know, I think at times that that's what, it gets missed in, in today's game because the data is so particular to one guy. So a lot of the data is individual data, mm-hmm. but really understanding the complexion of the pitching staff. I think last time I talked about the Montreal Expo, it didn't have one lefty in the bullpen. We had three left-handed starters. So that flipping in the lineup and things like that, that the opposing manager would have to do once we went to the pen and then you had to pin their right-handers that on the surface looked better for your lefties, but they were good at getting lefties out too. Mm-hmm. So 
the complexion of how it all works together and works in unison. You know, Jerry Depoto made a good comment when he was working with the Rockies with this. And he tried to, you know, he was stating the point of the, the basically the bullpen and the pitching steps like a relay race. And so once you start handing off to the first guy in the pen and he's got to hand the baton to somebody else and they pass the baton to them and the last guy finishes it off. And I think that's a good way to look at it. And it's the same way that I've always tried to look at it. What is truly that bullpen? It's not one reliever does well, you know, in this inning or you try to, everybody tries to simplify it a little bit too much. I think it's, who are the people around you, right? Who's hitting ahead of the guy? Who's hitting behind them? You know, what is the composition of that, truly of that lineup? Those are the issues I think that you get into that on the surface in terms of how the data just looks at one particular thing. I, I, I just think we get lost in that or you can not understand why a guy performed better that year than in, in another year. And, um, you know, that's the thing to me. So I don't, I even forgot your question. I don't, I'm just talking here. <laughs> no, I, I, I think you're right on point with it. I was just curious as to, you know, now that we have all this evidence, right? Let's call it evidence mm -hmm. um, with regards to using tech in baseball. And I think the tech's getting better and better, you know, working at a place like Colorado, right, uh, where the ball, the ball flies, it's, it's, you know, pretty evident that it flies there. But are you, from a, from a GM's perspective, are you then going into your draft, and I think this is going back to the conversation we had a while back, or in our last podcast about drafting players for needs versus wants or just finding the right guy, are we looking at the entire composition of the team of where maybe we don't have the swing and miss guy, but we have the guy that can locate and, and create ground balls? Are, are we negating those guys for the future of, of maybe the outlook of our team? Yeah, no, I think those guys are important. I, I, you know, to me, it's less, it's probably less about velocity and more about contact rate. Mm -hmm. you know so I don't you know it's it's typical to want to say okay that you know what type of pitcher yeah we want guys to throw 100 and they have an eight eight curveball and slider and change up yeah that's what we want but that's truly not what you're going to get but I think what the data allows you and, and I'll make a comment about um, that that I've thought of, uh, about the uh, you know, Denver in particular, I, I think it, it almost has to be a place for true data people. I really do. Because I, I think there, there are, I believe, lessons that I've learned that I don't share with anybody through experience and through looking at data that I feel are important. And I think data people are going to be able to unlock some of those. I think it's there and uh, whether they're on that path now, I don't know. I haven't gotten into it with the, you know, brightish and all the guys there, but I know they are data guys mm -hmm. and um, there are, 
things that you can do to put yourself in higher probability in terms of your player acquisition to to get players that have a higher probability, I'll say that, to pitch better there and to play better there. As far as the hitters, you know, hey, if you can put the bat on the ball, you're going to have a good chance there. I'll just put it that way. But, um, yeah, I think that – I mean, to me, the, the data stuff is so important. It's, mm-hmm. And like I might have said earlier, I mean, you can – even as a traditionalist baseball guy that's, I hate data, I hate data. There's a lot of data that supports what you believe. <laughs> so you might want to just at least find those out. Right. That here's what I believe, what's the data that supports that? And just go look at that. Right. Because, um, you know, but also challenge yourself to look at the data that may not support what you believe. And now it's gotten to the point with more in terms of the biomechanics, especially with the pitching, that not only can they do what the result is in terms of spin rate, but now it's gotten to the point where seeing those body positions and, you know, shin angle and things and, and you know, early rotators and how they can be um, altered or can they be altered in terms of your evaluation? Right. Right. I mean, that's the, those things that are coming in. That's what I really enjoy listening to guys talk like that. That can really dig into how it relates to a player evaluation, because we've all as instructors or coaches have players that have been difficult to get them to make an adjustment. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we don't know why. Sometimes you may say, okay, catcher, this guy's going to get more flexible so he can get down in there. And what I'm trying to make it easier for him to match the plane of the ball, right, as a catcher. Right. Right. But, you know, as a pitcher as well, there's a lot of things you, you want him to do or hitters, and you don't – well, there might be something biomechanical that makes him a lot more difficult for him to do that. And another guy where you say, well, he's going to be able to – He's going to be able to do this. Even though he doesn't do it now, he's going to be able to make that adjustment. And so that's where it excites me in terms of because, hey, go back 15 years. I mean, in just me using my four eyes now, but looking at players, I would say, I'd say, this guy could take it in the first round? My God, I'd never take that guy in the first round. And then I'd watch a player and he'd stall out and whatever else. And I go, yeah, well, I could have told you that. So that's what I used to use to get on the data guys that would do all these studies on the draft. And I'd go, well, that guy in your study, I wouldn't have taken him in the first round. So take him out. Put this other guy in there. I would have taken him. And then, you know, so you're, the data is always messed up by human performance. Right. Now you're taking the human performance out of it. And that's what's exciting about it. So you can get your decisions now are more probable to be what you think the guy can be. The one thing you'll never be able to do because it's in human performance is figure out what his performance will will really be. There will be people that overachieve what you believe Mm -hmm. and people that underachieve what they believe just because they're humans. And some humans are young and you gave them a lot of money. Right. And that tends to uh, alter what you might believe as 
as some type of fixed scenario. So I, I got a question and Guyva, if we're going to go into maybe a little bit of player development, <clears throat> a lot of organizations this year released because obviously there's no, there's no minor leagues this year, but there were a ton of players that were released on every level. So if you were, if you were a farm director right now, how do you go into this off season trying to replenish, hoping that number one, there's going to be a minor league season next year, but with all the guys that were released, you're talking about, you know, probably enough to fill a couple teams of guys that were just let go. I mean, is it, is it almost like a kind of like a, a smorgasbord of players that you get to, who do we want to bring in free agents? You know, cause Normally it would be, let's look at the six year free agent guys. You might have a couple guys that were released, but now it's like, there's such an, I almost feel like it's almost like the transfer portal for, you know, for college baseball. You got so many people out there that are, you know, that were considered professional players. And now they're, they're in that waiting period to see, you know, where's my life going to go? Am I going to have a job next year? Does someone like me? Did I do enough for the scouts? Um, with other organizations, is my organization going to resign me? You know, what do you, how do you feel like, like that's going to impact? What would it, what would, what would kind of that routine be going? If you're a, if you're a farm director saying, okay, next week, next year, we got to really build up a, a triple A team, a double A team. You know, we've got our, our guys that are two or three years in that we're, we're keeping them in, but obviously you can't survive on just the lower levels. You, you need guys that are, you know, getting close or being developed to be future big leaguers. Yeah, well, it's uh, as an old econ guy, it's um, the trickle-down theory, right? So you have less jobs at the major league level for players. And so there's less players that are going to be signed, which means there's more players in college that are going to stay there, especially for their senior year, which means that there's less high school kids that need to be brought into a program, a college program, or JC players that are moving up. And so there's better talent at the JC level because it was harder to get a scholarship at a four-year school. Mm -hmm. And it makes it much more difficult to be a professional player, to be a college scholarship player, to be a college player. Um, So with that in mind, I mean, I talked to one club probably in May and I asked the question of the guys in the front office, so what happens here? You guys are getting rid of, you know, half season team. So in my mind, with my experience, it's probably 35 players for a half season club right after the draft. You get a lot of guys mm-hmm. from extended spring that you're bringing in there that are going to go. You may, you know, move a couple guys down, you know, whatever. But there's in the neighborhood with the DL, probably 35 players that are somehow attached to that team. Those players are, are released now. So, because you don't have that team. And in some half season or some major league clubs had two of those half season. A few of them did. Mm-hmm. So they're getting rid of the neighborhood of 70 players. 70 less player jobs that they have. You want to look at it from an employment standpoint. Um, Now you've got tough decisions to make. 
some of those decisions have been made now. Some of them will be made prior to the Rule 5 draft. A lot of them will be made in spring training for players that basically played, you know, a year and a half ago. It was the last time they played in a championship season, we'll call it. Some of the high school kids or college kids that have been signed really didn't play at all. I'm trying to take them as, okay, they haven't played, so we're going to be a little bit more patient with them and keep them down there. You're either going to see a huge amount of players at, at the complex, right, that didn't break with one of the four long season teams, and a big number there where they're going to play and I would think multiple teams will do that because the clubs want to have made investment with those players. They believe in those players and they want to see them do what they can do. So I think you're going to see probably a glut of players there, but at the same time, you're going to see a lot of good players get released. And I can assure you that some of those players are going to wind up eventually being major league players, but they're going to get released, whether it's now I know a few weeks ago there was, you know, a bunch of players getting, minor league players getting released. Um, and then you're going to see some prior to the draft where everything kind of settle. you know, they're in the season now and they get done with that and they can really focus in the budget process in the front office to figure out how much money that they have to spend in spring training. Because now that, that'll determine how many players you can bring in and keep there. And so then they'll have to, make another round of releases. Um, I think as a farm director and as an organization, your pro scouting guy is just really important and your amateur scouting staff. Uh, who are the, you know, who are the players that as soon as they come available, you know who they are type of thing. And most clubs nowadays have particular pro scouts that are in charge of an organization. So they'll know everything about that organization. They may even be talking to some of the player development staff of who do you guys think you might be releasing during this or who's in trouble or who's on the bubble. And you kind of get an idea of what they should be anyway, getting an idea of what's going on in that organization to figure it out. But there's gonna be a lot of players out there that are good players and eventually some of them are gonna end up being big league players. They're going to have a little tougher road because they're going to be released and now they got to go find a job and play independent baseball or whatever they do to continue on that. But yeah, it, it's, it's really difficult. I'd say as an organization, no one, you know, those players are going to be tough and, and um, to figure out, but you got to figure out who's all out there and what decisions might be made, but it's going to be a lot tougher though. There's going to be a lot more players in limbo. And what I mean by that is if you play double A and maybe another year, and then all of a sudden they bring in some six-year free agent, six-year free agent guys are going to take the hit. Uh -huh. I'll tell you right now, they're going to take the hit. You know, one, they're more expensive. Two, you've got so many players that you've made investments if you're with a major league club to get to the big league level with a scout behind them, a whole scouting, you know, scouting director and all these people that have made decisions on that player to not only take them in the draft, but give them that kind of money. You're going to want to see if it can happen with him because he's one of your guys, so to speak. 
That's not to say he gets extra opportunity, but he may be able to stay around enough. That may be the edge of not bringing a player in on top of him. And so that's basically what's going to happen. It just got, you know, just got a lot tougher for those players. And it's got tougher for players everywhere, all the way down the chain to be a player and to, um, you know, and to sign with the team. Because I think what's getting lost is that opportunity, besides other things that I won't get into as far as the direction of, you know, what they're doing, cutting these minor league teams. But anybody that can tell you, they honestly know who can play in the big leagues and who can't. Um, and me knowing, you know, guys are signed, you know, after the draft or you just had a spot and you brought them in. I can remember back, way back with the Marlins when they first came in. And I just saw a post on Gary Hughes and I hope he's doing, doing better. But Gary was the scouting director at the time and he put out a message to all their scouts. Hey, we need some left-handed pitching. So the scouts went out and signed some left-handed pitchers. Three of them ended up in the big leagues. After the draft, just making a call to some scouts, guys that probably wouldn't have played professional baseball. And they end up getting signed and going out and pitching in the big leagues. And that's the thing to me that, um, you know, you just, human performance is, is a, you know, is a scary thing. And it's so difficult to, to, or to be able to predict human performance is a scary thing and really difficult to do because, you know, it's like that mountain, right? And you're climbing that mountain. There's so much difficulty and ragged terrain to try to get all the way up to the highest level in baseball. You have to have a lot of skill, not just in what you can do on the field, but you got to be the right guy. You got to fit in. You got to do all these things just even personally and handle yourself and conduct yourself and have the type of discipline and perseverance to battle through all that stuff to get up there. It's not easy. I think eventually the, uh, because of some, some of those guys dropping out or not getting an opportunity, you know, I think at some point it affects a big league level too, in terms of the true quality of those teams and, and what's going on. But, I guess it's all relative. I mean, we'll, we'll see what happens here, but I think it's a really, this year at all levels is the most difficult year to be a baseball player I've ever seen. Certainly at the big league level. Mm -hmm. And then minor league players aren't playing. I mean, picture yourself as a high school kid, you got drafted. We got a kid from our program with I'm a player signed out of, uh, Jake Burns signed out of Australia, Cardinal signed him. He gets all excited. He's, in Australia, he's going to go and show up to spring training and shows up there a week and a half, and then he's going back to Australia. So now he's a young catcher that you guys should be paying attention to. And, um, you know, he reminds me a lot of Brian McCann. I saw him in high school, scouted him, and same type of kid. But now he missed out on he's missing out on all that development time being a pro and being there and being in camp and doing all the things that you guys know that you learn as a young catcher and he's missing out on all that and when are they gonna 
So, I mean, we all talk about, yeah, it's this year. It's this year. We don't know what's going to happen next year. Mm -hmm. We really don't. I mean, we think we know, but, you know, there's a lot of situations that can transpire to make that even more difficult for these players that are out there now. I mean, the guys, I'll go back to that mountain, right? When you're trying to, and I was, you're trying to get to the big leagues, the highest level. Well, down here, it's kind of smooth and it's a gradual slope of the mountain, right? You can kind of get up there. Everybody can kind of get started. But what you need to do is create some momentum to be able to climb all the way. You know, you got to get through, you got to get a running start to climb this thing. And so that part of the mountain is pretty, you know, pretty easy to travel through and kind of flatter and it's an incline, but you can kind of get through there and the hard stuff starts coming. And, but you have to have some momentum and these players are not creating any momentum right now, especially if you played a year and a half or whatever. Now you're taking a year and a half off. Yeah. It's difficult to regain that. And that's what I worry about. So it'll be interesting of, of watching what happens with players and their prospect status, what people believed of them, some that I have personal history on, and then be able to watch them and, and how this all, there's going to be some negative effects to all this, I would assume. And then we'll, uh, we'll see how it plays out. But um, don't think this is not, Taking some type of uh, taking some type of negative effect on young players and what they eventually can perform. Do you foresee independent ball exploding now too? I know there's something that you can't really speak on. Um, you know, I think COVID, in a sense, maybe has helped Major League Baseball with regards to. Um, I wouldn't say it's overloaded right now with teams and stuff, but do you think it, independent ball would be a route to then maybe consider? Well, they're going to have to. I mean, I don't know if there's anything I can't speak on. I don't work for anybody. <laughs> uh, I'm talking I'm about maybe the potential of this major league plan that I've heard background noise on. Yeah, they talked out. about a dream league, I think was the term thrown out of me. Mm-hmm where players that are either released or whatever, and you got these half season uh, places that will no longer have an affiliated club, that they can be part of this dream league. And so there is some type of professional baseball with players that are unattached to an organization, either released or younger players that, that you know, pass through the draft and somehow didn't get signed, but somehow try out for this thing and make one of these teams. And then the scouts can come in and watch them. Any player that's looking to get, uh, you know, I don't know how that works as far as, a, you know, it can't be a professional, a truly professional league mm -hmm. because, you know, those players would be subject to that, be professionals. And maybe they will. I don't know. Maybe they're working on that now, how that works at the NCAA. But right. I'm assuming it's you're, you want to be a professional and you're in this dream league and then the major league clubs just come out and watch you guys all play together and figure out if they want to sign anybody, they can just pull them out of there. So that would be a competitor of a true independent league, I would think. Mm-hmm. Because it's not really independent. You're 
attached to Major League Baseball. That's where the scouts are going to go. I think it would hurt in terms of somewhat of the talent at the independent leagues um, because if, if you guys would tell me that all the players in the independent league are trying to get to the big leagues, well, they're going to be trying to get to that dream league before they would go to a straight-up independent league. So that's the way I would see that situation, but that all has to happen too. I mean, I think MLB's got a lot going on here to start another league and do whatever, but you never know. Is there, I mean, that whole thing with the teams affects staff too. I mean, you got a lot of coaches that if you're taking out a team, well, there's a staff full of, or there's a team full of staff at that place. Uh -huh. Where do they go and what do they do? Because you got less players, so you need less staff. Uh -huh. And so there's going to be a lot of staff members looking for jobs as well. And maybe that Dream League is part of that to help in that type of scenario for those guys. Um, and hopefully, you know, you always hate to see people that are trying to do well. And that'll be another effect, too, where the talent level you know, there's less opportunities for people in baseball to coach and scout. And it'll affect scouting as well at some point. Right. I mean, there are clubs that are minimizing their scouting staffs right now. And because they'll have be less rounds of the draft. It's just less and less opportunities for people to make baseball a career. Boy, I'm really just making yeah, this. Yeah, it's just day around the day. It's raining here in Omaha right now, so you just yeah, you know, I'm just what? raining shit shit turds right now on me right now. No, I'm just full of good uh, news. Good news <laughs> for everybody. <laughs> uh, I w I wanted to shift back into some analytics stuff. Um, you know, we were talking about you know, pitching and, and what kind of how to build a ball club up through the middle, um, just kind of like how it's always been traditionally done. I want to talk about um, hitting, maybe. Do you think the strikeout, there's, there's too many strikeouts in the game or is the pitching that much better? And then shifts, um, the batting average, you know, is the batting average a dead statistic, do you think? Oh, I don't think it's dead. Um, you know, you. <laughs> I like guys that get hits <laughs> because I like base runners. Right. So, yeah, can you get into, you know, some other stats that may be better? Sure. Why not as far as offensive production? But in terms of batting average, I think that's always going to be important. I mean, you, you want to know – who, who can actually get hits in this thing because that creates base runners that creates run production. You know, it's always going to be important. And then that to me, that there's a, you know, it's almost like the exit velocity who has great exit velocity. Okay. That's great. But who consistently has good exit velocity, you know, that, that, that rate of certainty or perceived certainty by, what is your rate of whatever it is? You know, way back when, and when I first saw this was, um, I remember the Cleveland Indians added something on their scouting reports that I saw was, you know, can he pitch or can he play? 
I think is what they had. And then what do you think the probability of this guy getting to the big leagues? Or what is the probability of, in your confidence, that he's going to achieve what you say? And I was sitting there looking at that going, man, that's what you, you know, because from a pure scouting standpoint, you're always geared in potential. Mm-hmm. And I think this is kind of what we're talking about here a little bit in terms of, you know, what truly is this guy potential? But then is he going to be able to do this on a regular basis? I mean, what is the, it's, it's like, uh, you know, I was involved on Twitter and the guy's talking about, you know, outs are the same as strikeouts. And I'm going, well, no, they're not the same because you have to have contact. The contact rate is really important here because contact is what will lead you to run production. So strikeout rate's not going to lead you to run production. The strikeouts don't. So you need, you know, what is that level of contact rate as it plays into these equations that is really important because like I was saying, you're going to win 60 in a big league season. You're going to win 60, no matter how bad you are, your team's probably going to win 60 games. And most likely you're going to lose 60 games, no matter how good you are. Right. It's the one in in the games in the middle that determine whether you're going to be a good team or not, whether you're going to have a good season or not. And so those are close games. You see it every year when you're watching highlights at the end of the night. Who's going with these comeback wins and they're all dancing on the plate and da 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 da. And the teams with the most walk off wins are usually the ones that end up playing in the playoffs because they're winning close games and they're winning games late when it means the most. So who can move the ball with the bat late in the game is probably pretty important. And so to say an out, a strikeout's the same as an out, I don't get that. We play for runs. Runs determine <laughs> wins. And limiting runs on the other side determine wins, not outs. And so they're not the same. Outs that produce runs are really, really important. Um, so from that respect in terms of of i think what we're looking at in in data and and how it plays into it um to me i think whether some of these things and i'm getting a little lost what was what was your question well i'm just curious about just when when you're you know again constructing ball clubs or you're looking in the outlook of the team you know you got this hitter, all right? Well, let me let me put a, okay, an example yeah, together. You got somebody like, you know, and, and I'm a big fan of him. Uh, he was a guest on our show, but you got somebody like an, an Austin Hedges, okay? And he's superb. He's probably one of the top defensive catchers in the league well, from everything that he does. Number one, statistically. Right, right number one, statistically, and just about everything. And, and uh-huh. he does different things, um, or he does more – probably defensively, but he struggles at the plate and maybe his, his strikeouts are, are up there and he's not as consistent. So, you know, again, going back to this batting average question, is it, is it a dying statistic? Do we need to worry about that? Does he need to worry about that? Um, or is he providing value somewhere else? 
Um, just because you're seeing a lot of the strikeout rate go up every single time you turn on MLB network, they're talking about, you know, Brian Kenny's talking about, um, Oh, there's so many strikeouts, you know, and, and less ball in play. And, and he's a very analytical guy, which, you know, the game has obviously shifted in, in that direction, not to say that we haven't had statistics or data to, to compound what we're actually seeing. But I guess from, from that perspective, are does it matter does the average matter do the are the strikeouts actually going up and are we looking at this in a, in a different way well i'm going to score runs by hitting a home run um as opposed to hitting two singles to knock a guy in yeah i don't i mean hedges is whenever you're dealing with uh, okay we're talking about the field now right so mm-hmm. that's my reverse mountain correct yep and up the middle of the field, you want to play defense first. Because mm-hmm. pitching and defense wins. That's our foundation. So it's no different in basketball. The point guard handles the ball the most. He's got to be the best handling the ball. I don't care what he scores right now. Let's just make sure that he can handle the ball and he can get assists and pass to the guys that need to probably play really good defense because the other guy on the other side is, you know, he's the ball handler. They're the quarterback for the team. Mm-hmm. So – same way with looking at hedges. He's their defense. I mean, what percentage of, of it are you going to look at it in terms of trying to figure out? I don't know, but a catcher, you're probably 70% defense. I'm looking at mm-hmm. I want to see defense. I'm out there to see a defender. And if we're going to have a good team, we got to pitch and play good defense. And part of pitching is the catcher mm-hmm. and who's handling them and dealing with them. So I want a really good guy behind there. That's where his value really holds him up, no matter what he hits. And that's the way of, you know, his average, to, it's all relative, right? So now he, I'm not matching Hedges up against a right fielder or a first baseman or DH. I'm matching Hedges up against all the other catchers. Mm-hmm. And how many times can they go back there? And what is all the other statistical information I can dig up on their defense? And that's what I want to know. And also the, you know, more qualitative stuff on how he deals with the staff and handles a game report and, and manages all that and pitch calling and blah, blah, blah. And working with the advanced scouting guy and the video guys of how we're dealing with each hitter. All that is playing into that 70%. The other 30%, well, okay, let's see what we get here. Bonus, right? And then stack him up against the other catchers. The problem with average, when you look at averages and, like, you know, aggregate, is you're mad, you know, he's, I don't know, 190th in the big leagues or something in terms of batting average. Might be lower than that. But... But it doesn't, it doesn't really matter. And now let's take it to the catchers. Yeah. And then let's take it to the everyday catchers. And what are they really doing? And then now that's only, that might be 30% of his value anyway, as you relate it to him as an overall player. But his defense is so far and above. I mean, the, the average catcher, average replacement value of a catcher. I mean, I, I, I don't know. So is average important? Yes, but it's all relative. It's not a straight up, 
you know, matching guys that are there to produce offense against a guy who's there to produce defense. So I think when you do that, he holds up a little bit better. Wouldn't you think? Yeah, I agree. Have you, have you watched any of the, uh, you've been watching any of the games recently? Just a little bit, just a little bit. It's different. What, what do you think about the, uh, I was watching a game I was watching actually the Padres last night. I saw um, Tatis hit one like seven miles out of the stadium. Um, they're playing, they're playing music and crowd noises, you know. Yeah. And you look and you see the the cutout thing is the stuff that I remember the the opening night, and I'm I'm sitting there watching it with my son, and he's like, "Dad," he goes, "Look look at that," and I didn't even notice, and I look at all these giant cardboard signs everywhere and you know then of course the advertiser oh if you want one with the with the dodgers you know send your 300 hundred dollar payment to get your your cutout cardboard you know whatever but i don't know it just everything i'm glad they're playing it just looks really really strange i'm trying to imagine what it would be like to a player now now granted in a game you don't hear anything you know you're locked in and everything's silent to begin with but just the the pregame, you know, the, uh, you know, fans usually walk, start coming into the stadium around six o'clock and seeing people filter in and, you know, the, the hecklers on, you know, I remember all the time on the on-deck circle, people used to always have fun with my last name, you know, and then you go up to the plate and it's, and it's silent. But how about the kids that for their very first big league experience are in there and there's nobody watching them? You know, they're, they're sitting there in dead silence and listening to video game music being played across the, over the, uh, the intercom. Like, that's just. No, I mean, I, for you guys, you guys know what I'm talking about when I say it looks like a B game. Yeah. <laughs> looks Absolutely. like spring training and it's a B game. Yeah. On the backfield, field four, we're going to play the B game on field four at 930. And uh, you go back there and there's nobody around except for maybe some coaches and whatever. And you're standing there watching a B game. I mean, that's what it looks like to me. But, you know, and then you got to get into as well. Of, and this is another thing that plays into it. Now, there's data being produced. What is the value of that data? What is the value of the performance right now? I don't, is it the same? I don't, I don't know, but I also get from a player experience too. Yeah, you don't hear the crowd, you don't notice them, whatever, but it's amazing to me just watching it of how big a part that we probably never understood the fans are to the game. You know, you don't even really think about that. Like you're saying the hecklers and that whole player experience of mm -hmm. that. You, I'm watching it going, God dang, I never, you know, you just don't realize that people screaming and cheering and all that and with how that really plays into the entire experience from a player perspective. Yeah, even especially like later in the game, you know, game's close and you bring in your, your, um, your setup guy and your reliever and the crowd's going nuts. And, you know, there's, I'm sure there's times when you're an opposing team and all of a sudden the crowd is just electric and they're, and it's deafening and, you're sitting there looking around the stadium going, God, I don't, I don't think it's going to happen tonight. This is just, it's, there's too many other factors, you know, over, over what I can do once I step into the, into the box. That's, well, um, you have to know too what it's like 
when you're getting ready to hit, some guy in front of you hits a homer, and he comes in, it's a big homer, and it puts you up, and you get one of those high fives that, you know, basically almost tears your wrist off for me from this guy who's so excited. And you don't even get that anymore. Yeah. You know, that guy's he's giving air high fives and fist bumps and and whatever else. It's just, it's totally different. I know that's a little getting out there, but it, it really, it really is. And that, and that's what I mean. I, you know, what is this experience? I think only the players and staff will be able to tell you truly, you know, what it is. And then the data associated with what's being produced with a very short time to get ready and coming I think out. guys, I think guys are, when they're done, they're going up to the, I, I heard them saying going up to the suites. Like, I don't even know if they're, uh, I mean, have you heard anything? Is there an actual big league locker room or is everything just kind of, hey, you two guys are in this suite. You guys are in that one. Go get changed up there. Shower at home. I'm hearing they're, they're showering back at the hotels. You know, I mean, that's just, that's like, like high school ball. It's like little league ball. You know, you, you show up in your uniform, you play, you go home in your uniform. Some guys wear their spikes to the games and, you know. Yeah, it's, I, just a much, it's a much different deal. I think clubs are handling differently, but especially on the road, I think it's much different. But, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it's uh, – I know they, they needed to play. I'm yeah. certain of that. They needed to play and they needed to get out there. Um, but at the same time – if you're sitting at a desk and you need to make value judgments on players and you're looking at this data, um, you know, how do you look at it? Because it's not like regular data you get in a major league season. Right. It truly isn't. Plus you're looking at when it's over, you're looking at that as, okay, here's what he did in this. Well, that season only lasts 60 games. We're going to play 162. So, okay, I get it, but it's not really a complete or what you would want in terms of evaluating data, I'll put it that way. Maybe a lot more of the analytical spin rate and that type of stuff. Um, again, that's where that comes in, where you can see some things that way. But trying to look at the numbers in terms of the performance or production, either on the mound or I, I, don't, I don't know how you do that. Well, even the guys that are, you know, you have some guys that are big moment guys that, you know, can can go up there and be a game changer, you know, and, and a lot of those guys feed off that adrenaline from an opposing stadium, you know, from the opposing team. And now it's, it is, it's like a B game. Like, how do you get yourself up for that? You know that you're playing a game, you know, you're, it's a shortened season, you know, and I mean, we're going to have to get somebody on who's playing right now to, to kind of give us how this, you know, how they walk themselves through, but it's almost that self-psyching ability, but you have to do that. I don't know. I, I'm sitting there thinking when I caught, I was always the same. I was 70 degrees, whether, you know, whether it was 50 or 30 degrees out or hundred degrees, I always tried to remain right there. Never high, never low, always the same. <clears throat> but I I know that there were, you know, playoff times when you'd have the energy from the opposing team and you'd have the energy from the crowd and you feed into that. And now these guys have to almost kind of, you know, we see it on TV where it's, you know, they're trying to fake it. I think Fox had 
the virtual fans, I think, copied from a video game that when you look in the crowd, you see everyone moving, you know, going like this, and and it it looks like you're playing a video game. I don't. Yeah, it's just that the whole experience is crazy right now. Yeah, but don't discount your level of competitiveness. When it, mm -hmm. Come on, I don't care if you're playing ping pong. You know when the game's on the line. Yeah. Okay, we all do. Anybody that's played the level you get to play, you know what it's like to compete. Right. And a lot of that is internal. A lot of what you try to do is to do for your team. You want your teammates to respect you. You want them to respect your performance. You want to be able to go into that dugout and truly know you belong. You're one of the boys and you pull your weight around here or you're a leader around here. And when that game, whether it goes towards the end or doing whatever, the true competitiveness comes out. It's, it's, that's internal. There's an internal awareness of what's going on here that I don't think any fan can truly give you. But at the same time, they can give it to you when maybe you're not as feeling as good or as confident because they think you can do it. Right. <laughs> maybe you get some confidence from them because they're cheering you on. They're not booing you. But, uh, yeah, that it's that's what I mean. I, I think there's a lot of unknowns here. I think a lot of things will play out, whether it's younger players and whatever, it'll be interesting to watch. And who performs well in these 60 games, and then all of a sudden there's a big trade or a big signing, and then what they do after that. Yeah. That'll be, uh, that'll be interesting to watch, just because they performed well in a, in a very short season. So. There was uh, something I wanted to, to touch on. Chris brought up a good point. He put it out on social media, I think, the other night. He's like, what's, what's the use of the taxi squad if you're shutting teams completely down? You know, the Cardinals, I think, had a big outbreak, you know, a couple staff members, and then a, you know, about 10 players, I think, is what it was. And, I'm, again, I don't have the exact numbers, but I thought that – and he, he brought up a good point. I thought the use was of a taxi squad is that you were just going to replace that player that maybe had tested positive. Now I get it. It's internally you don't know how widespread this this virus is but you know i would assume that some of these guys that are minor league guys they're going to back into to, to roles as major league players so why you know i mean think that there was a couple guys that have tested positive why aren't they being replaced with with their taxi squad and why are we just shutting or canceling or suspending games at that point you know, I don't know. I would assume they have some type of – to have a competitive championship season, which they're attempting to do, I'm sure there's some guidelines in terms of, okay, if it's more than X amount of players, then we'll shut it down. If it's yeah. less than that, you can you replace them. I'm sure there's some type of stipulations as that goes. I would assume. But or maybe they're just doing it on the fly. Who knows? Yeah. But I would assume they had that going in, and then uh, and the taxi squad's an interesting deal too because right. you know you're gonna have you're gonna have players that are you know right on the verge, maybe could have been on the club but not, but are easily bring this guy up and play. And then there's other, but they need to play and compete and do things there. So there's some guys that are further down the list that are in that crew as well that 
probably the chances of them unless there's you know some type of huge outbreak and there's <laughs> nothing else they can do are going to get to the big leagues but yeah. um yeah i don't know but the taxi squad has got to stay ready absolutely and stay sharp and even though some of those guys might not be the first or second guy called up they still need to, the coaches and the organization wants them around the staff and to be working out on a regular basis and to get that experience, right? You're always looking at what type of experience can we give this kid? Mm-hmm. We're trying to get him to be, you know, the best big leaguer he can be. We want to push him to, you know, double A. Is he ready for that? Is he ready for triple A? Do we want to send him back to double A? We're trying to, do we bring him to big league camp? That was always the big one for me we actually bring him to big league camp put him in that environment now and you know other times you might not want to especially if you have a major league staff that's real quick to evaluate players you know hey he's not i don't he's not ready to show to these guys yet because they're not gonna like him so let's let's keep him back here let's iron out if we've got to put him in back in the oven at 350 for a little while before we <laughs> go them off to these guys. Cook them a, lo- a little longer. <laughs> yeah, because I don't want when we're calling a guy up to hear, oh, I don't like that guy, da 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 because that can happen too. But it's all about those experiences and trying to, like I said earlier, create that momentum, give them some experience to do that, and get them ready for what they're going to have to do at the big league level. And part of that might be being on that taxi squad right now. Hmm. Or we got some something we want to work on with this guy, and he's close enough. Let's get him around here and get him involved in this. So, yeah, there's a lot going on from that type of perspective, more than filling a uniform at the big league level. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, so we've we've discussed your book, do you want to work in baseball? We've also discussed that you, your website inside baseball operations.com. I want to talk about what you're doing now um, <clears throat> in terms of, well, you're, you're ready to go train for your um, PGA tour card here in a little bit. Um, yeah. Senior, senior, se- card. Se- Oh, senior card. My, my fault. <laughs> um, let's talk about uh, what you're doing now with, with your business and uh, I'm a player. Yeah, I'm a player. What we try to do is, and we'll help players at any level. Uh, We have, you know, a couple minor league players um, that through the agents we work with and advise on what they're doing from a routine and and physical and kind of mental aspect of what they're doing with their career um, and provide that mentorship of somebody they can talk to. And then, um, you know, mostly I'd say the majority of them, so we have some college players as well that are trying to look at the draft and how they can position themselves or make sure they're doing the things that people want to see that make those decisions on the draft or professional baseball. And so we mentor them and talk to them and watch video and, and do stuff with them. And then there's the majority of it, I would say, are more high school players that are trying to play at higher levels, typically in college. And what we'll do is send somebody out. Um, If I can go, I'll go. If not, we have scouts around the country that'll come watch them. And these guys have been full-time major league scouts. 
they'll watch them and try to uh, write a full report in one of the programs they'll write a full report and so the player and us we can use that with college coaches as a report combined with the video and whatever so from a true evaluator here's the report here's what i see based on a major league scale no different than they're scouting somebody for the draft um, and then at the same time offering a development plan for them of things they should be working on or doing and really reinforcing how they're going to be evaluated in the future and so what they need to spend their time doing and we talked about hedges 70 30. well you have probably i'm sure catchers with you but if i go across the country and talk to catchers and say okay what how much time if 100 percent of your time in baseball how much is spent on defense? And I'll typically go, how much of the 100% is spent on strength and conditioning? And they'll tell me like 15%. Okay, how much is spent on hitting? Oh, probably 50%. I said, oh, okay, so now we're down to 35% for your catching when 70% is probably how you're gonna be evaluated on your defense. <laughs> You know, that's the thing to me as a player is it sounds so simple, but players really don't, you know, they don't understand what's important. They go into a cage and try to hit the top of the net and <laughs> they do that for hours on end. And then every once in a while they'll, you know, go and throw like we got a defensive routine for catchers that you can get free on our I'm a player .us and you can go on there and pick your position. It's just a defensive routine. It looks really simple. But it's for every position, even pitchers, we have a PFP one, they can get for free. And it looks real simple. But if you do that three times a week, starting when you're 14 years old, you're going to be really good at doing the performing just about every play in the outfield or infield or behind the plate or PFP, um, you know, or a pitcher defensive play that you have to do. Try doing that at that point when you're 17, how good are you at those? But you have to do it in a routine and you have to do it on a regular basis. And that's what we really try with us. We try to stress upon the players. The only difference between amateur players, I used to tell the guys in the minor leagues this all the time, there's no difference when I go to an A-ball game in terms of pitcher's velocity. I see guys throwing 100 in A-ball. I can see guys throwing 98. I see guys with eight raw power, seven raw power. Some of them aren't physically developed as well to show that. I see eight runners. I mean, I see the tools that I normally associate with seeing a major league level. A lot of times I see better tools in the minor leagues, better raw tools. The difference is when I go to watch them or see them major league players have a routine that they do where they couldn't even play a game unless they did their pregame routine if we said hey we're gonna cold jock it and play a game in cincinnati at you know 110 you guys show up at 12 30 and we're gonna tip this thing off at 110 there'd be a mutiny <laughs> i mean guys they, the catchers are gonna need their 20 minutes to do all their stretching and all this stuff that's just stretching Right, the pitcher's got to do this. So they get everybody's got their routine. They got their weight training routine, their weightlifting, 
whether it's the sauna, whether it's this, is all a process and all a routine that they've developed over years, figuring out what's best for them. The difference is the younger players don't have that routine of what they do to put themselves in the best, best position to perform, nor do they have the routine yet of what's the best position they can be in to develop their skills to be one of those guys. And so that's what we try to be. It's not a, everybody's long tossed. Everybody's run sprints. Everybody's done yoga. Everybody's, but have they, do they do it on a regular basis? That's truly the difference. And so it sounds simple, but it, and it takes a lot of discipline, but the players really have to understand that. That's the difference between being a big leaguer. That's the big difference between developing your skills to be a big leaguer and your tools is that you've done what you've needed to do on a regular basis. That's how you get better at it. And that's the whole idea of trying to bring a major league perspective in baseball. And then in softball, it's more a division one type of perspective to younger players. Here's how they're gonna look at you. Here's how you're gonna be evaluated. Here's what you need to do on a regular basis to improve that. You know, we get in situations all the time where I'm talking to all the kids and I'll say, all right, you know, who's running a 60? And they, you know, they all raise their hand. They've all run a 60. Say, okay, that's great. Who's run one in the last week for time? There'll probably be nobody. And I say, okay, who's run one in the last six months? It won't even be half of the group. It'll be like if I talked to, like in Sacramento, I think I talked to 100, 100 kids. There was probably 15 of them that have run one in the last six months for a time because they had a showcase or something they went to. I said, okay, that's great. I said, so running a 60-yard dash, and I'm not going to get into that debate of how important that is, but that is a primary tool for a lot of people to try to figure out who is, has some type of athletic coordination here. Who can, who has the leg strength, the core strength, the upper body strength, and the athletic coordination to move all those parts together against the resistance of the ground for a long sprint of 60 yards. Mm -hmm. And who can hold their strong enough to hold their mechanics that far. Who can do, you know, who can do that? What is their time relative to position? Who can do that at what we would perceive as an acceptable rate? Because I can knock a lot of, you tell me you're shortstop and you're running seven, six, I'm out. <laughs> okay. So I'm already scouting. You're just out there stretching and running a 60. I'm done with you. Okay. So I don't need to watch. Yeah. I might watch you hit because maybe you can be a corner guy but you better get that seven, six down to about seven, two. Yeah. So these kids are going through all this showcase stuff and doing, and they're just getting times. They have no idea what they mean. They have no idea what, whatever, but if you, I'll tell you right now, if you're on a seven, six, a seven, eight, and you're a position player, you probably shouldn't be going to any showcases. I'll assure you of that. Okay. But that's the thing. Now, what are you doing now to get that time down? And most of it is just going to be practice running 60s. If three times a week you ran four or five 60s, 
you know what? You're going to get your legs stronger. You're going to get your core strength strong. You're going to be able to hold your mechanics better. Your time, just by running them, no matter what form you have, is going to go down. And now we'll start worrying about form and your starting position and all those types of things to get that time down even more. But the decisions on players, and this is what we try to bring, the decisions on players from the guy making the decision, it's very close. It's very close. And some, some of these things that, that people are doing or some of the data that's collected go into making that decision. And if you run a 7-4 and I got a guy who runs a 7-2, I'm probably leaning more in that because I'm feeling like a better athlete can make the adjustments that you have to make at a higher level. And the common denominator in all these guys in performance at the highest level is going to be athleticism. Mm -hmm. Some catchers are going to be more top-half athletes. They really don't care what they run, but, you know, you can see their hands and their movement. And, but you can also see in their lower half their flexibility and their true quickness and their range is what we might say. And those are all things that go into making these decisions, but they, they're, they're, so you put up a draft board. How many shortstops can do it? We were talking to, a, or I was talking to Andrew Friedman at the SEC Championships. He was with Tampa Bay at the time. It's a GM of Tampa Bay. We're standing there in Birmingham. I don't know. I'm fat. So it was so hot. I smelled like bacon. I think it's the, the smell of bacon. was everywhere. Okay. So, and Andrew and I are talking and I said, Hey, how's my kid out of Seattle? That smell. God, I loved him. You know, he was young, but I really liked him. Da, 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 da. And he's going, Oh God, well, I just checked on the, uh, on the game reports. He hit 95 today in rookie ball. And I said, I'm telling you what, he, he touched 91, I think, the day I was there. And, uh, but this guy, I loved it. You know, athlete, da-da-da-da-da, whatever. He goes, hey, the guy I really liked was Story. Because we had taken Trevor Story. And I said, yeah, he's, <coughs> he's going to be really good. I was surprised when I went to see Story. There was only a scout for the Orioles and me and another scout with the Rockies. This is the last game, uh, could have been his last game in high school, it was in the playoffs, right before the draft. I could not believe that there wasn't any more scouts there. I'm saying, we're looking at big league shortstop with power. What are these guys looking for? There should be 40 scouts here watching this guy, making sure he doesn't get hurt before you take him. You know, that type of thing. And, uh, he goes, yeah, you know, he goes, I, I looked at the board of shortstops because I didn't see story, but I looked at the board and I go, who are the plus runners of shortstops up here? And the scouts go, oh, this, you know, story kid's a plus runner. But, you know, we got him down a little bit of these other guys are ahead of him, whatever. And he goes, I remember watching the video and those guys told me he was because I wanted a plus runner at shortstop. And he goes, that was my guy. And now I'm watching him. Now I'm talking to you and you're telling me he's going to be, I said, yeah, he's going to be really good. And he goes, my God. Well, that was the diff. That's how close it can be with the whole board of shortstops is this GM wants a plus runner. And there are plenty of guys I'm sure that were average or solid average runners that could have worked on their 60 time, 
for some scout to say that they were a plus runner or ran harder in the games and didn't let up because they knew they were going to be safe or knew they were going to be out when somebody there, some old guy with a fishing hat was there with the stopwatch. They, it's so close of who gets taken, who doesn't, who gets opportunities, who doesn't. Any little thing you can do as it relates to your priority in that position is extremely important to the point where people just don't, they don't understand. Oh yeah, I go hit all the time and I lift weights. Oh, it's good, you lift weights, it's great. But they don't understand how that how this all plays into and that's what we try to do with the business is kind of organize everybody in terms of what they do to make sure they're maximizing their potential when they're going to be evaluated when it means the most whether that's getting a scholarship whether that's um you know being drafted or being drafted higher i mean that's the thing to me i don't if you're you say, okay, I got a chance to go in the first round. I mean, you should be calling us up because we'll somehow put you a little higher in a few spots in the first round, maybe worth a million bucks or more. And so whatever you're paying us is not going to, I mean, probably, I mean, you got a chance of making a lot of money off of working with us. But that's, and that's, a, so that's what we try to do. And, uh, it's been good. You know, the kids are, are pretty good. The discipline aspect of staying with their routines, they can get better at. I know the whole COVID thing, but you know, and I pulled no punches. If you really want to do this, I'll help you. We'll help you. If you want to just kind of go through and this is kind of another thing or whatever else, and you're going to have some angry guy on the phone who feels like he's wasting his time. I kind of, but what we'll do, what we'll do then is we'll throw your, we'll throw your links up then on our um, on our Facebook page, Instagram, Twitter, and make sure that we get the word out for people to come by, check out the check out the websites, and if they have any questions, they can obviously message you from there. Is that correct? Yeah. Oh yeah. I'm here unless I'm out trying to get on the senior tour. <laughs> well, perfect. I know. I know Tyler's got some things to to do you got to get mentally prepared to get on the links and um i gotta i gotta work with some young kids before i i'll just say i gotta work with them <laughs> they need some work but uh no man that was uh listen we, we love having you on and and just listen to you know your insight it's um for people in this game that are trying to hear a different aspect of the game and you know, what players should actually be thinking of, you know, of what they no, can that's nice. do. I mean, if you could, better if you guys could do me a favor, if you could go to imaplayer.us and then go in there and, and uh, I don't know about signing up, but go in there and at least get a, uh, a catcher's, you can get them all, but get a catcher's defensive routine and tell me what you think of that. Absolutely. I'll do that a little bit later today. I got some catcher's, uh, at five o'clock, so maybe I'll pull it up and we'll go through it today as a uh, as like a twenty minute warm up for it. So we'll we'll check that out and yeah, it's it's basically those are all made for if it's you as a player and another player or you and your dad, you can throw no throw fifty percent throw and just work your feet. 
but um, basically trying to make sure that you're getting regular work on you know all those all those skills yep how just real quick before we before we duck out how early do you think what's a good age for kids to actually start especially with all of the you know i mean i i get people calling me up and say hey my eight-year-old needs lessons and i'm like just play catch with them just have fun that's too in my opinion it's too young i don't try not to work with kids you know until they're at least in their teens because then i know they're they're more engaged and they're they're into it they have a they have an agenda yeah but why they're doing it to to me it's such a touchy-feely game i mean if if for me, an eight-year-old needs to be with people that know what they're talking about. Yeah. If you can get to an eight-year-old on what separation, you don't have to, he doesn't need to understand separation. But if you can teach an eight-year-old to be in a position where his hands and, and front foot are, are not together, I mean, what's that good? This guy's going to hit. Absolutely. Yep. And so you get them before that. So I'm not saying it's all this technical training and, He's on blast motion and this and that, although I like that. But just to get in there and to get that position to hit. or just is get him in a routine. What's that? Just get him into a routine. Yeah, or a pitcher to be able to keep their fingertips on top of the ball. Mm-hmm. You know, some of those things that if you were taught as an early age to get the ball out of your glove and keep your arm path relatively behind your body, not swinging out towards first base for a right hander, mm-hmm. but right in your body line, and to throw that way? Oh, my goodness. What's that worth? We're trying to fix these things sometimes in professional baseball. Yep, yep. When it's been ingrained for 14 years, and now to be as a 6-year-old or 7-year-old or 8-year-old, to just take a few things that are fundamental aspects of performing later, and zone in on those nothing spectacular nothing crazy just a few things that you think are foundational aspects of performance later i I don't that to me is just as valuable as getting something when you're 15 or Mm -hmm. 20 or 25 and more valuable really especially that aspect of hitting and, and separation if I don't see that as an evaluator, and I got to feel like we got to teach that to you, then it's, you're moving on. Yeah, or you're that guy's sliding down. Yep. You know, he's sliding down of what I perceive of him being able to produce against late action pitches at a higher level. Or, you know, can we teach that to him? Um, and that's the thing to me. And that's the big one that I see in all pitchers are laid out of the glove. They stride across, they kill their lower half. They have no lower half leverage at all. Their arm is late and in hitters, it's the same. They drag their hands forward with their body. I think it's playing the game at a young age and a strength issue is where those two things come in. Mm-hmm. Is that the game is, it's a big field when they get to it, the big field. <laughs> And so they're trying to produce power, and that's the only way they can do it. And then you've got to kind of take them out of that. But if you can ingrain how they do that and how they produce power without doing some of those things that are wrong, um, I don't know. I don't, I don't, I can't tell you 
working with an eight-year-old for a guy like you that understands that stuff so bad, then I can't do it. Well, we always always try to throw as much information to out to them, whether it's on social media or Facebook, and or just at camps. Camps are usually the good ones where you can take those those younger kids that are learning the positions for the first time, give them a give them a basis for mechanics, and then see how they develop. And if they if they come to you down the road, then then we can kind of work on other stuff a little bit more advanced. I try to keep everything stages, you know, whether it's eight to ten, ten to twelve, you know the kids I have this year, my son included, it's their first year on the big diamond. So it is a, it's a huge adjustment, especially from catchers. You know, you see a uh, catching and pitching your, your, your distance is a lot greater. And, you know, you actually see the kids being forced to use their legs more now than they have over the last couple of years, you know, yeah. and, you know, they just, they just part of the game, part of growing up and, you know, hitting that maturity level puberty obviously helps with it too. Um, and then this is the 13 to 15 is usually where the kids are going to sprout up and their velocities are going to jump up and then you can kind of get a, get a better age, better view from it from there. Right. No doubt. But those, those key fundamentals of their mechanics, I think you can give to them at any age. I don't, I don't, and to me, I'd want to get them as soon as I could. Mm -hmm. And well, just, very good. So I'll go ahead and post that. Uh, I'll post your site up on, and all the stuff that we have uh, for some kids out there, let them take a look at it, let them dive in, and and let's turn in them, turn these kids into some good ball players. All right, beautiful. Well, thank you guys. Appreciate it a lot. Absolutely, man. We love having you on. Anytime you want to come on again, you just give us a holler. And um, good luck on the uh, on the links today. And hopefully, we'll see you on the uh, PGA Senior Tour pretty soon. Yeah. Good luck with that. <laughs> hey, anytime. You guys just call me. I like to talk. So I'm Sounds good, Gabo. See you later. All right, man. Have a good one. Take care. Bye-bye.